0: And we're going to be looking at the resurrection appearances or the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start that series today on Easter by looking at Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in Luke 24, 13 through 35. Here now the reading of God's word from Luke twenty four thirteen, and to verses uh, thirty five. That very day, that very day, that resurrection Sunday, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a shock the first Easter Sunday must have been to the disciples. Mourning the loss of their their leader, their Lord, their prophet, mourning the barbarity of the way in which he was killed wondering if all their hopes and dreams had come to an end, only to be amazed with stories of resurrection from the dead, of angels visiting the earth, declaring that the Lord has risen. And slowly he appeared, and slowly the disciples believed. Lord, we are like them today, maybe, searching for belief this Sunday in the resurrection, searching for the good news, May we find it today in your word and at your table. As I preach today, may the word of God be magnified, the Son of God glorified, and the people of God edified. Amen. So just a week ago, in the biblical timeline, people were pouring into the streets of Jerusalem to greet this Jesus of Nazareth. Word had been spreading over the years about this miracle worker. It was heard that he once fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and a couple fishes. There is a Roman, a centurion, no less, that had told people about how Jesus healed his servant just by saying it, by speaking his healing into existence. The centurion returned home to find his servant alive and well lepers were going around Galilee and Jerusalem saying that this Jesus healed them and touched them and restored their bodies. And what's even crazier about all this is it was reported that not too long before the cross, it's rumored that he even brought back to dead one of his closest friends who had been dead several days, that this miracle worker just spoke to him, Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus came forth alive, well, breathing. But it wasn't just that he was a miracle worker. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all debated theology and scripture with him until they got tired of being embarrassed and tired of being silenced by the sheer wealth of wisdom that this Jesus of Nazareth had. All the more embarrassing for them since he had no formal training. He was a carpenter who just loved God and had this relationship with him that he was able to silence the most learned in their theology. Yet this Jesus was different, and many had hoped that a week ago, as he entered Jerusalem looking so much like what the Messiah is supposed to look like out of uh, the books of Zechariah and, and, and Jeremiah, the king who would deliver Israel from her enemies, this was finally it. Israel would be redeemed. How could Everything goes so wrong in just a week. He was arrested. Worse than that, he was betrayed by one of his closest and intimate disciples. He was taken to the temple where he was found guilty of blasphemy. And he was not only found guilty of blaspheming God, but the Jews were saying that he was declaring he was king of the Jews. So they sent him over to the Romans because the Romans have a thing about people running around claiming to be king when Caesar is king. So together they consorted to have Jesus condemned to death by crucifixion. He was beaten, forced to carry his own cross before he was nailed to it and lifted high as an embarrassment for all. And then he died and in his death, he actually received one last kindness. A man approached the authorities and requested, "Could he be buried in my grave? I'm a rich man, I have a brand new grave. Uh, let this man be buried in it. And they agreed. But there is still fear about this wonder-working prophet of God, that something might happen, that his disciples might take advantage of this tomb and somehow steal the body and make it seem like some great miracle happened. So they sent a battalion or a troop of soldiers to stand guard at the tomb. And so ended the life and ministry of one Jesus of Nazareth, prophet of God, the end. That's not too unlike several other stories of messiahs that came along during this time of Jesus' life. Other messiahs who got people to follow him, uh, or follow them, and it only ever led to not only the messiah's death, but all the followers, and they're all scattered, and nothing happens. And as these two disciples are leaving Jerusalem, they had to be thinking along the same lines. Right? They had to be so distraught that all the hopes, all the time they spent following this Galilean carpenter around and seeing the miracles. is, Is that it? There's nothing more? Once again, evil has won and our hope has been killed. But there was the strange news. Right before they leave to go to Emmaus, some of the women had reportedly been to the tomb, and it was empty. More amazing than that, there were reports of angels visiting. I mean, if you read the Old Testament scriptures at all, when angels show up, God is doing something big. And they're you know, speaking to the, the followers. They spoke to the women. But Peter, he goes to the tomb, and he doesn't see angels, but he also doesn't see a body of Jesus. So they, they're asking, what happened to jesus he spoke in lots of riddles where the disciples often misunderstood what he was saying or didn't follow they had to be asking what does this all mean and where is jesus when jesus finally appears he puts on an act that almost seems like out of a comedy right we the audience are told that this is clearly jesus And yet, once again, the disciples are in the dark, as they always seem to be. They cannot recognize the stranger, and they're shocked when he doesn't know about everything that had just happened in Jerusalem. I mean, by all accounts, Jesus was probably well-known as he's going to Jerusalem, but he caused such an uproar that every—I mean, the Romans have to get involved to to quell the anger and the fear and and everything going on. So if you were in Jerusalem at that time, you probably heard about this upstart— From Galilee, who was crucified. They cannot recognize him, even though Jesus is right there with them. And so now, even as he is glorified, he still has things to do for and with the disciples before he ascends to the Father. And in fact, what we see him do for the disciples, he's gonna do for us. This story is not just a marvelous recorded event of something miraculous. That Jesus did way back then on the road to Emmaus. I mean, it is that, but it's also the story of what he's doing in each of our lives. It's the story of how the church functions. We, like the disciples, are asking, where can Jesus be found? And Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, shows us that he can be found in the scriptures and in the supper. So where is he in the scriptures? The disciples show their confusion as, uh, once again, in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And Jesus' response to the summary of what happened over the previous three days is very reminiscent of his time with his disciples. He calls them, lovingly, you're foolish. You're you're not picking up what I'm putting down. How are you not getting this still? I've been with you so long. I've done so many things and you're still not connecting the dots. And they were often getting confused. So if you remember in Matthew 16, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, he immediately tries to interfere when Jesus starts talking about the cross and dying. Uh, he's rebu- uh, Pe- Jesus rebukes Peter for that, but Peter understood that what Jesus meant by being Messiah was something different. He was a- depicting a coming king who was going to conquer uh, Rome and free Israel, and that they would once again be back like they were in the days of David. It was this continued misunderstanding on the part of the disciples about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah that was so frustrating to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's that frustration that Jesus responds to in verses 25 through 27. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself moses and all the prophets it's an all-encompassing phrase meaning all the scriptures from genesis through malachi uh, jesus would open up the scriptures and wouldn't it have been wonderful if luke gave us those exact scriptures, right? Like, wouldn't you want that discipleship guide of how to, you know, nurture yourselves in faith and how to walk with others about, you know, let me show you this entire narrative, grand story of God's redemption through Jesus, the way Jesus laid it out with these two disciples, but we don't get that. And while we could maybe guess at some of the big passages like Genesis 3.15, where Eve is already promised an offspring who would defeat the serpent, or we could think of Isaiah 9, the coming of the, the, this prince, this king of kings, lord of lords. We could think of all those types of passages, but we have some clue as to maybe at least one of the key passages that Jesus probably shared with them, because it's something that the disciples constantly struggled with. As I mentioned a moment ago in Matthew 16, Peter's rebuked for mentioning the suffering. Of the cross. He takes issue with the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die for you. So now, fast forward with me with me for a minute to Acts 8. Philip, the deacon, is on the road, I forget actually where he's going, but he's on a road, and he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch. And as Philip is walking, and the Ethiopian eunuch's up on some type of chariot or horse, he's hearing the eunuch read Isaiah 53. And Philip helps him interpret the passage of scripture for the Ethiopian, and Luke records their conversation in Acts 8:34 through 35. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Do you see the similarity in Acts 8 to Luke 24? Philip interprets Isaiah through a Christological lens. He uses the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to show the Ethiopian that he is referring to the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the suffering of God's anointed that is our clue in Jesus' walkthrough of the scriptures with the two disciples. He probably walks them through and hits Isaiah 52 through 53, where we hear of the suffering servant who would Bear our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sins. He would be lifted high up for all to see. He would be beaten, and his pain and his wounds would heal us. Through his righteous death, many of us would be accounted righteous. But not only does he walk them through the scriptures, highlighting the suffering and death of the Messiah, he shows that there's an important key element to this. There's a proper interpretation to understanding the scriptures. Right in verse twenty-seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We have to interpret the scriptures correctly. In seminary, one of my professors uh, began every call, every class, with a call and response, and he would say, "Shalom, class," and everyone in the class would respond, "Shalom, Jay." And then he would say, "Start with the Bible," and we would all respond, "Not with the commentary." And he'd close with, context is, and you finished it by saying, king. Right interpretation is based first on a proper context of every passage of scripture we're dealing with. And I'm not going to go through a hermeneutics class. I feel like we would definitely all fall asleep from that. But it's important to think of at least one simple good principle of interpreting the Bible we can get here from Jesus himself. Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So he uses scripture... To interpret Scripture. And that's something our own confession says in the very first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It talks about Scripture, interpreting Scripture, so that when we come to difficult portions like the suffering of Christ, we can also uh, interpret it with other, more understandable pictures in other parts of Scripture. And more importantly than that, he interpreted them, all the Scriptures, concerning himself. He was the focal point of Scripture. The right way to interpret it is to start and end with Jesus. All right, so with that simple, very simple interpretive lens, we can dive into why we still need them. Why is Jesus doing this? If we want to learn about him, if we want to learn what his death meant, like the disciples were asking, why did he die? Why is he not here with us now? What is going to happen in the future? We need the scriptures. If we want to make sense of our current world, we need to be in the scriptures because that's where Christ Is found if we want to know how to live our lives in a godly way we go to the scriptures because it is telling us how God wants us to live in the world so if we want to be healthy and maturing Christians we cannot live off of just podcasts and YouTube alone we need to be feeding from the scriptures daily you you may recall you may not but a story from 2012 a young 17 year old girl passed uh, out while she was at work and she had a very swollen tongue, and she she looked, you know, kind of very sweaty, and her skin was a little bit of an odd color. Well, it turned out the reason she passed out from work was severe malnourishment. She had only eaten McDonald's chicken nuggets her entire life. Very few to know fruits or vegetables. She learned the hard way that she couldn't just live off a breaded chicken alone. She needed an actual, like, good diet of green vegetables, fruit, water, Probably would have gone a long way to helping her. Yet that's what we do with our own spiritual diets. So many of us are dealing with being malnourished spiritually while we have an abundance of biblical resources available. I made light of podcasts a second ago, but there are great podcasts that take you further into the scriptures. Amanda spent one year doing a whole program where she read the Bible chronologically, and every day there was a podcast that walked her through the portion of scripture she just read. That's a really great tool, and I'm grateful I get to live in a time where I can do that so easily. So I want to encourage us that there is nothing that can replace the Word of God To grow in godliness and love and faith and this is to feed us and not only our our spirits but also just our minds and our hearts to love others nothing can replace that spurgeon tells the story of a man who was a great skeptic by nature and he had written some books about uh i believe christianity being very skeptical of the bible or the supernatural world and he was taking a hike in wales and he came uh, became very thirsty and so he stopped at a cottage to ask for a drink of water And a little girl answered him, "'Oh, yes, sir, I have no doubt that Mother will give you some milk. Come inside.' So he went inside and sat down, and he saw that the little girl sat down and continued to read her Bible, which she had been reading when he knocked. And so he says to her, "'I see you are getting your task.' And she replied, "'No, sir, I am not. I am reading the Bible.' "'Oh, yes,' he responded, "'but you are getting your task out of the Bible.' "'Oh, no, it is no task to read the Bible.' I love the Bible. So he says to her, Why do you love the Bible? And her simple, childlike answer was this, I thought everybody loved the Bible. Her own love for the precious volume had made her innocently believe that everybody else was equally delighted to read God's word. And this man was so touched by her sincerity that he read the Bible himself. And instead of being an opponent to the things of God, he came to be a friend of divine truth. Why am I talking about the Bible at Easter? Why not talk about the glory of the resurrection? Friends, there are two reasons why this passage is so important and so wonderful to preach on Resurrection Sunday. First, we cannot learn the glory of the resurrection without the Bible, right? We can look out in this beautiful day and glory in God's good creation, but it cannot tell us the story of Jesus Christ come to this earth to save sinners. We need the Bible, And second, our passage took place on the same day as the Resurrection. Meaning that the first thing Jesus did when he rose up from the grave was to instruct his disciples from the Scriptures. Jesus could have appeared in glory like he did to Paul on the road to Damascus, but instead he intentionally prevents the disciples from recognizing him so that he could disciple them through the Scriptures though he was the resurrected God in glory, he still said, you need the word of God. He knew he was going back to the Father, so he prepares his disciples for how to find him when he's gone. He shows them first how to find him in scripture, and next he shows them where he is in the supper. Read 28 uh, through 35 with me again. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, But they urged him strongly saying stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent So he went in to stay with them When he was at table with them He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he Vanished from their sight They said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened us to us the scriptures And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. All right, full disclosure before I go into this part of the text. I consulted lots of commentaries uh, because if you read this and immediately thought of the Last Supper, I think you're right apparently lots of commentators don't want to make that exact connection. They, they get a little cautious, and I think part of that is probably because most of them are afraid of being too sacramental or too Catholic in, in seeing that what Jesus is doing here is reminding us of the Last Supper. Some of it is because he only does something with the bread, and the Lord's Supper is a two-part act. We have bread and wine, but I think there's lots of reasons to see that this is a reference and an encouragement and a reality of what happens to us when we take the Lord's Supper, like we're going to take here in just a few moments. So this isn't the first time Jesus uses a meal to reveal himself, right? In Luke 9, when he feeds the 5,000, it's immediately after that story that Luke places Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ of God, he says. In that story, Jesus blesses and breaks bread and then he breaks bread, and then he keeps on breaking bread, turning five loaves into enough to feed 5,000. And maybe that event was Jesus breaking the bread brought that memory back to the disciples mind. And it could be. But this account is not just written for Cleopas and the other disciple. It's not just recording for them something that they lived and experienced. The, The Gospels are written For us, they were written to a particular community. So, I mean, the fact that we even know one of the disciples' name is a good hint that the community that received Luke's gospel, Cleopas was in. That way, when it mentions Cleopas, they're like, "Oh, you were there. Tell us about it." But it's written for the church to continue to be encouraged. So, further, these uh, there will be things revealed in the scriptures that you may have not been aware to the first audience. So, a couple of observations about why I think it's likely that this is still referring to the Lord's Supper. Jesus acts as the host to a meal he was invited to. When you go over somebody's house, who's the host? The person, you know, whose house you are going to. If you go out to a meal, I mean, I guess that's different, but when you go and invite somebody to come out with you, you're still kind of functioning as the host, but Jesus, in verse 30, he's the one that's at table with them and he takes the bread and blesses it. That was the 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 responsibility of the host. So, Jesus acts as the host to a dinner party he was invited to. And then, and only then, once he breaks the bread, are their eyes opened. Up until this time, the scriptures make it clear that the Lord shut the disciples' eyes. They weren't allowed to fully recognize who Jesus was. Now, you might wonder how this could happen. Surely, these disciples should have recognized Jesus. Well, here are some very famous people who uh, were also not recognized, even though they were very, very famous. And keep in mind, too, that during their lifetime, they were probably way more famous than Jesus. And they also all had tons of photos and films about them. So lots of people actually got to see these people. This wasn't like, you know, someone just once being able to see Jesus in Galilee and then two years seeing later seeing him show up in Jerusalem. So Charlie Chaplin, the famous silent film star of the early uh, 19th or uh, early 20th century. Charlie Chaplin was walking in San Francisco one day, came across a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest, thought he would have some fun, rode in, thought he was going to win it all. He didn't even make it to the actual competition. He showed up, did a bit before they went on stage and the guy was like, woof, that is not a good Charlie Chaplin. So he lost his own look-alike contest. Dolly Parton, the patron saint of good country music, lost a Dolly Parton look-alike contest. She got a bit farther than Charlie Chaplin, but she still lost. Uh, finally, Hugh Jackman. If you don't know Hugh Jackman is, he's Australian, he can sing, he's good looking, he's very talented. Uh, but he's most famously known for being Wolverine from the X-Men video franchise, where he played the same character for like 15 or 20 years. Lots of people in my generation and y'all's generation probably would know Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. So in promotion of one of the X-Men movies, Hugh Jackman dresses up in character as Wolverine. Keep in mind with clothes and costumes that he probably got from the studio and goes to Comic-Con. It's like one of the biggest you know, comic book, movies, sci-fi, uh, conferences that's put on in California every year, and he starts walking around. He thinks this will be great publicity. Nobody paid him any attention. Only two people actually approached him about being Wolverine. One was to say that his costume wasn't bad. The second was to take complaint with the fact that Hugh Jackman apparently is 6'2 or 3 and the real Wolverine, the the real, the Wolverine in the comic books is 5'3. So while I believe that the scriptures, that the, for while I believe the scriptures that the disciples were prevented from recognizing Jesus, let's not be so quick to think we would have done any better. Plus, they did not expect to see Jesus. Right? He was dead. Even the reports that you know they, they hear about, they're not fully believing that this happened. Right? They're debating it. They're trying to figure out and make sense of all of these reports, but they're not believing that are expecting Jesus to show up. Let's not lose sight of what's really going on here with that part of the hidden appearance. The important thing is this, that he wasn't recognized until he expounded from the scriptures and prepared the supper. The disciples don't have an opportunity to ask questions because Luke says Jesus just vanished. But listen to what they say to one another. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The meal served as a reminder of what the scripture said. All the promises of scripture, promises from our Lord's own mouth, are met at the table. Our confession of faith puts it this way, worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. Christ is in the Lord's Supper spiritually. When he said the bread was his body, he meant it. But he still knew it was bread, and the disciples still tasted and saw regular bread. But it didn't change the fact that Christ promised to be united to them when they partake of this meal together. So when we take it together, we are united with Christ and one another. That's what drives the disciples, right? Once they have the bread and Jesus vanishes They've been united now with Christ. They recognize that he's risen. And what do they do? They sprint back to Jerusalem to be united with the other brothers and sisters to tell them this good news. One last thing, the meal served to build up the disciples' faith. It was to assure them of the truth regarding what Jesus had done and who he was. Remember, they were confused and they were doubtful about the amazing report that they had heard from the women. Their faith needed building up And the Lord gave them the means to do it through the word and the sacrament. In preparing the Lord's table, a Scottish preacher once said uh, to convey assurance to the believers, if you cannot come with assurance, come for assurance. If you cannot come with the strongest confidence of him who said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, at least come with the trembling faith of the afflicted parent who cried, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So, where is Jesus? That was the question every disciple was asking that first Easter morning. It is one that many of us continue to ask today, whether we're a disciple or not. We look at a world filled with plagues, wars, natural disasters. We experience personal trials of disease, family problems, work problems. We know the wrongs done to us by others, and if we're honest, we're always aware of the ways we've wronged those that we love and those that we just encounter for a brief moment. Where is Jesus? Why doesn't he just show up and take care of everything? The two foolish disciples were dragging their heads and feet out of Jerusalem. All their hopes seemed dashed. They heard conflicting reports about Jesus's body, and maybe it was just too much for them, so they left town. It had to have seemed like the world was greater than Jesus. Maybe that's why they were fools. Maybe it is why we are all fools going about this life, constantly worried, never fully arriving at trust, afraid that the world might just be too much for this Jesus. Where is he? Why doesn't he show up? So on the dusty road on the outskirts of Jerusalem, headed nowhere, Jesus shows up. But he knows he isn't staying long and he knows that the disciples are weak. So before giving them the good news face to face, as it were, he shows them how to find him in scripture and in the meal only he could prepare for them. And he does so for you and for me and for all those who profess faith and believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised for the salvation of all God's people. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for making yourself known to us in the scriptures. Thank you for sending your Son, our Savior, to die the death we deserve so that we might become uh, righteous and reconciled to you, to have a life that we definitely did not deserve. We are thankful that you not only uh, reveal yourself in the Word and that we can hear and read uh, your life and ministry through your Son, but that we can actually partake at the table and be nourished by Christ himself, giving us strength uh, and grace to get through our lives. Be with us now as we go out the rest of this day celebrating and pronouncing that Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. We now come to the table that Jesus Christ is, himself is presenting. We will begin our, our communion by singing hymn 146, verses 1 and 2 of Break Thou the Bread of Life.